young people are just getting angrier and angrier. So it's like, you gotta learn three chords, you just got somewhere to put that anger then. <laughs> it's like funk music is, is a useful tool in society these days. Hi, I'm Matthew Viriapa, and you're listening to a bonus episode of my conversation with Matt Heckler. Whoever's dear to you, hold them close tonight, cause you never know what will come. There was a lot that we had talked about that we left off in the previous episode like his experience touring with Floggy Molly, and how he's really gotten into biking lately. When we talked, he had just gotten back from a bike trip to Florida, so I decided to put all that stuff into this bonus episode of No Cover. And definitely go back and listen to the previous episode if you haven't heard it yet. Here's the episode. Screaming like a banshee all night long my hands are off from working through the fall just to make my way back to you. You were on like a, a bike trip, weren't you? Yeah, I went and I biked from Titusville Saint, to St. Pete in Florida, which is uh, was interesting because I'm not much of a Florida person, but went down there and it was 250 miles. We did it in three days and then kind of spent a bunch of time in Florida and there's, it's a mostly a bike path. So it's like pretty, I'm not really one for riding on roads, but it was mostly on bike paths connected across and there's big gaps that you kind of have to ride on the road and fill in. But besides that, it was, it felt very touristy <laughs> for sure. I didn't expect them to have like 250 miles of just like interconnected, like trails. It's almost done. It's I think in the next couple of years it'll be done. And there's, they're kind of building up bike paths all across the country. There's one that just opened in upstate New York. That's like insane. There's, you can go pretty far and there's one from DC to Pittsburgh. Um, and they're working on one clear across the country. It probably won't happen in our lifetime, but <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, pretty incredible stuff someday. And they're actually working on one here in Asheville. I live outside of Asheville and it's going to be like 130 miles, uh, more for people to commute because what Asheville is just not doesn't have the infrastructure for this kind of traffic and population. So that's kind of cool to like to just have a bike path for people to to actually use for travel instead of like kind of recreationally, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be practical. It's going to go like north, south and also west of Asheville quite a ways so you can kind of connect from all sides except down the mountain cuz I don't think people want to commute up and down the grade to get into the mountains. Is that something that you just, you like to do? Is that a pretty big hobby for you? Yeah. Yeah. In the past two years, I've gotten pretty big into biking, uh, kind of unconventionally, you know, a lot of people either take to mountain biking or, or like road biking. And I kind of take a slow route in the mountains on gravel roads and forest service roads and I do what's called bike packing, which is basically you have bags that you put on your bike so you can get out pretty far into the wilderness and camp and yeah, but I don't really have any buddies that do it. So it's just, just me, <laughs> this Florida trip, some buddies came down and it was great, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. I had no idea. Like, I wasn't sure if this was like normal biking that I would usually see when I'm driving where it's like uh, a pack of people like in the 
the spandex, you know, where they're trying uh-huh. to like be as like sleek as it's possible to get as much speed and stuff. Yeah, for sure. My buddy, my buddy VJ, he uh, he was making fun of me because I'm out here in the winter. It's like there's snow up in the mountains. It's cold. I'm wearing like wool and warm clothes because I'm out there by myself. If something happens, I'm gonna have to make do, you know. And he was making fun of me because I'm wearing blue jeans and wool. And he bought me some some spandex to wear biking that it's it has it's printed on it so it looks like a pair of overalls (laughs) and i I was wearing it in florida it was it was pretty comical (laughs) now that's awesome you know i i want to talk about that magnolia session um album that you put out because i thought it was like a real interesting kind of like like it just feels like such an authentic way to experience music yeah yeah absolutely i think when that album happened, I was trying to, I bought like a zoom recorder, which is like a little field recorder. Um, and I was going out in the mountains and trying to do exactly <laughs> what came out on the Magnolia sessions. And it just wasn't working out. Cause it was just me. I needed someone there kind of engineering it. And then Dan came up with the idea for the Magnolia sessions, him and Benjamin together came up with the idea and they had me come and do it. And I mean, it was kind of kind of like busking. I really liked it, but it's really nice. Like, Dan's house is real cozy in Nashville. You're in his backyard under this magnolia tree, and it gets it got like real dark, and it was really humid, and it was raining a little bit when I was doing it. There was one small light, but it's like I forgot I was in a backyard in Nashville. kind of kept going in and out of the music in a way that kind of did make it a little different than busking because i think i was focusing pretty hard on it instead of just letting it rip it it came out it came out well i think i play a lot of those songs better but that's also the beauty of the recording is it's like that was that was your take move on you know it's like and that's what my live show is there's definitely some nights where finish a song up and I'm like well that was the worst I've ever played that song because I never play anything the same twice so that recording kind of captured that live spirit I swear to God I'd bet it all on an old copper cause it went hurt don't kill me there ain't nothing to fear Nothing good left. There's nowhere to go. Gotta get out of here. I'm hoping to maybe do another one. I think Dan might be doing another series of them. We'll see. But Jeff Loops just put his out yesterday, March 5th, and uh, I haven't heard it yet. I'm excited to hear it. I just like the rawness of a musician and their instrument. No, no fancy work. No other musicians backing them. Just what happens when it's just you and your instrument? You know, that's I love that rawness. Yeah. I was talking to a few other musicians who perform kind of just with their instrument on stage. And there is kind of like a a fear that they've talked about just like 
there's no place to hide. Um, it's just you. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. And for me, I mean, I've stepped on stage in the past couple of years, having a pretty rough time or just feeling not good about life or getting on stage or stepping in front of hundreds or maybe thousands of people. And it's like, you get out there, but it forces it. It's like, for me, I don't know. It's, it's kind of like stepping into home. You just get on stage and you got to make the best out of it. And I think there's only been one or two shows where I just was not feeling it in the past couple of years and gave it everything I could, but you know, it's, you don't, you don't get to hide, but it, it does for me, at least it forces out what I'm seeking to put out there. It's just kind of like, since you can't hide, you get this epinephrine boost and it's like, here we go. <laughs> like, and also as a solo musician, that's kind of playing a little bit more rowdy music. The crowd often is my band, just how the crowd interacts, you know, cause that's the hardest thing about playing solo is in between songs. I got to tuned three to four instruments. I got to think about what I'm going to say and not sound like a total idiot. <laughs> and it's like, if it's just deadpan and the crowd is just kind of standing there, which I always appreciate a good listening crowd, but it's hard, you know, if they're not reacting, if someone says something kind of like <laughs> off the cuff in the audience, like I can work with that while tuning and like burn through some time in between songs. But I think the hardest thing about being solo is, the dead space in between songs it's because you can lose a crowd you can lose a crowd real quick and it's hard to get them back so yeah that's why i got i have a lot of dumb banter because it's better than nothing you know <laughs> i'm sure uh, there is a population of your fans that are, are carryovers from the band that you were in um deep chatham yeah for sure there's there's definitely so that band was primarily julian sykes and jeff loops um and it was kind of Julian's mastermind. And I joined that band once they were already had already been a band for a bit. And I was kind of like third member, um, kind of like Ringo writing <laughs> like some mediocre songs, you know. It was early in the springtime when she came to me. Loaded gun in her hand at the devil's command. Her past. So a lot of that was Julian's project and I loved it and and there's definitely a little bit of carryover but I mean Julian is probably one one of two of the best songwriters I've ever heard so it's like put my music next to his and it's kind of dwarfed by like how incredible so I think a lot of people are like yeah that weird guy that came eventually and <laughs> messed everything up so there's a little bit of carryover but then there's like the true blue OG Deep Chatham fans, which I'm, I'm kind of, I, I also feel similar to them. I'm like, my favorite Deep Chatham was just Jeff and Julian for sure. You know, I, I've always wondered, like, your, your singing voice is like kind of different from i say kind of i'm pretty different from how you sing yeah yeah i think a big thing is like you know i grew up in new york and having learned music i've been thinking about this a lot having learned music by ear everything by ear and self-taught 
you kind of have to have a malleable brain for soaking in sound. And so it's like, you know, I grew up in upstate New York and then lived in New Orleans for a long time and all over the country and now live in North Carolina. And it sometimes when I hear myself talking, I sound like some like Southern Staten Island hybrid <laughs> and people are like, are you Irish? I'm like, no, I'm from New York. <laughs> like I can't quite put my finger on it either, but yeah, definitely uh, not from Ireland. <laughs> I would love to talk to you about the Ireland trip. I feel like Anthony has already done it on this uh, really great um, live stream that I'm definitely going to to link everybody to because yeah, that video too is like amazing. I love that video of uh, you just singing on the cliff. <laughs> that was that was an awesome situation. That was middle of Flog and Molly tour too. It was like I was supposed to go to Ireland and I was going to go for a couple months and all of a sudden I get the Flog and Molly tour offer and I'm like, I still have to go to Ireland. Like, I have to do this. I've been playing this for so long. So I went for five nights and literally like flew in, met Anthony, shot the video. It was freezing cold. Like, <laughs> I like went to all these bars and didn't drink and watched everyone get hammered and sing and it was beautiful. And then all of a sudden was like back in the States and touring a couple days later. It was just like, so I watched that video and I was like, that happened. I almost don't remember any of it. It was so fast. So hopefully I'll make it back over there. All my favorite music is happening over there. There's there's an incredible scene booming out of Dublin and all over Ireland right now. So I'd like to go see that in person. You say this life is not your lot, but I can't be something that I'm not. Can't stoke a fire that we ain't got When there ain't no ash will burn I'm curious to hear about like what it's like touring with Flogging Molly since that's a <laughs> punk crowd. <laughs> yeah, it was it was awesome. So when I was when I was way younger, I was like, you know, I loved Flogging Molly. I I remember when Swagger came out, I was like, I don't know, maybe 13, 14 or something. And then it's like over the years, I kind of got an ear for more traditional music and, you know, wasn't as much into the like the super rowdy punk side of things. And then I got an offer to open for Flog and Molly. And I was like, all right, like this is, this is funny. This is going back to the roots. And uh, it was great. I mean, I was sober then too, which was another very interesting element because. <laughs> I literally was opening a show up and I can't remember where it was. It might've been at the Hollywood Palladium, which is like huge, well-known venue, all kinds of famous people played there. And I'm playing the Hollywood Palladium and it's sold out, packed St. Patrick's day. And I watched this guy dressed as a leprechaun <laughs> and he was looking at me so concerned. And he, for a while he was into the music and he was like bobbing his head and, and then he just kind of stopped, but he was still staring at me. And then he looked, started looking really sad. And I'm like playing, and I can't stop focusing on this guy. And I'm, I'm looking at him, and he's just like all of a sudden just starts dribbling vomit like <laughs> down his leprechaun costume. And, you know, it's packed in the Palladium. Like, you cannot move. And then it just starts coming, man. It's just like the exorcist and everyone's trying to get away from him. And he's just staring at, he's staring at me. I'm trying to keep it together and I'm staring at him like, I do not know what to do for you, my man. Like, 
I am sorry, and this is also hilarious. There's a couple situations on the Flog Molly tour that were really funny. <laughs> I was, uh, that was one of them. Another one was, I think we were in Detroit and it was this huge, incredible theater. Might've been Chicago, but I was feeling not great that night. Just like really exhausted and had been talking to Dave, the singer of Flog and Molly, Dave King. And he just kind of asked me my background and stuff. And he got some of it kind of confused <laughs> um, <laughs> as to what I was telling him. I was like, yeah, man, I was like, you know, homeless, living in my truck, like sleeping in Walmarts, like kind of living like a home bum, like busking. And uh, that was years ago, you know, and I was I tried to really accent that. I was like, that was years ago, you know, like. <laughs> I'm not, you know, I'm trying, not trying to bum up your green room. I'm backstage. I'm not feeling good. I'm like, I'm going to go out and I'm going to get in the mosh pit. <laughs> and I did. And I like get out and I like get in the mosh pit for a song and people are like slapping me on the back and they're like, you're that guy that was just up there. And it was just like, it was really redeeming and it felt good. And, and then I think, I don't know if Dave saw me or what, but he was like, I want to dedicate this next song to the man that opened the show tonight, Matt Heckler, who not even two months ago was living in his truck at a Walmart. And I was just like looking at him and looking around and every, everyone around me that was just Moshman was just looking at me like, Oh, what? <laughs> it was just this really funny moment. Oh that God. was probably my favorite flog and Molly moment. Uh, <laughs> just kind of all eyes on me all of a sudden, like, you doing all right, man? I was like, well, well that's not quite the story. <laughs> it's just funny seeing people. Then, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't have any shame. And in, in, in that point, it's like, I was just transient and you're, you're living out of your truck, you know, and you end up some, in some sorry situations, but it's just funny people's perspective on that. And then being surrounded by people processing <laughs> that right in front of you. <laughs> and they're just looking at you different. All of a sudden they're like, you were just on stage in front of 3000 people. Now you're here. And, we don't know what to think <laughs> But it was great. I mean, it was incredible. I was getting on stage. I had half hour sets every night because I was the opener for the opener. I was I was just kind of like playing while people were coming in for the most part. But I had a half hour set, so I was just letting loose. I'd get on stage, clock would hit, and I would just be crazy. And I also started that tour getting over the flu and had almost no voice but I could scream. <laughs> I mean, like, like, like not good scream, but I could scream and it was almost in key. And I, I just couldn't miss this tour opportunity. I was like, this is so big voice or no voice. I'm doing it. And so I'm, you know, in front of thousands of people that are seeing this guy play some like honky old time fiddle and then screaming like he's in a metal band. And people were just like, I don't know what to think, but we really like it. It was, it was pretty funny. So it was, that tour was ridiculous. It was, it was a trip. Yeah. I wasn't sure. Like, um, if, if the punk crowd would, would, would take to the, to, to the music. Yeah. I, it went pretty well. I just kind of kept it ratty for a half an hour 
And uh, I, there was only one person that I remember. I mean, I'm sure I was playing like at the one show, there's like five or 6,000 people. And it's like, at that point, half of more than half of them can't even hear me. Because <laughs> you know? it's just not set up for a guy in his fiddle. But it's like, you know, I never got any bad feedback except for one show at the Palladium. And I watched a guy just kind of like, you suck. And he like took his beer cup and I was just watching him do it. And I was like, oh man, there's so much security here. Like, I get that you don't like my thing and this isn't very Flog and Molly-ish. And I just watched him throw it. Oh. And I just kind of like ducked it and it didn't, you know, didn't affect the show or anything. And I just watched security <laughs> to pull the guy out by his like face. And I was like, oh, buddy, you should have waited 10 more minutes and it would have been over. <laughs> oh, my God. Like what what songs do you play opening for Flogging Molly? Oh, man, it was there's definitely I didn't have a banjo for that tour. So it was just guitar and fiddle. And I was doing kind of like real rowdy old time tunes and trying to stomp along just to keep some attention, which I have terrible rhythm. So that was not working <laughs> well, but, you know, kind of more like St. Tomas morning breaks, like rowdier songs that definitely have more grit on them. I don't think I did any slow songs for that tour. I just kind of kept it like upbeat and, a lot of minor key and it seemed it seemed to translate pretty well yeah yeah it's interesting to hear that i feel like uh, a lot of that kind of traditional music that they'd be into would be like the drinking songs <laughs> yeah yeah which is was interesting i mean i had i have like one song i you know i probably don't realize how much i reference drinking in my music I, it probably happens a lot but i have one song that's like it's called old rub alcohol blues not my song it's an old old tune and uh, definitely would play that and it would get a reaction. Just the word alcohol. <laughs> it was kind of funny. And that was, yeah, it was a trip doing that tour sober, man. It was a testament to my sobriety, but it was also just like reminded me of why I don't drink. <laughs> like it was lovely, but I saw a lot of things that was like, this is why you're sober. <laughs> some, of the, some of the crowd aspects are definitely were helping me reflect. <laughs> For hateful lies to listen once again. Five hundred years like Jelly Was being like in in Arbor and uh, the lumber industry a life that you were kind of like thinking would be, you know, your permanent career and something that you'd really be happy, you know, kind of doing? Yeah, I was I was pretty excited about that career pursuit it was like physically engaging mentally engaging and i had kind of the best people that i was training under that were really caring and safe and uh it was just the perfect situation sometimes i miss it and sometimes i still go and work for them here and there i definitely miss using my body to that full capacity <laughs> I, I like i like long days of hot tree work it's just like you get done and it's like i did that and i feel like i'm gonna pass out but that is that's saying something you know yeah it seems like it might just touch the same part of like that busking physical experience just being out and working for like hours at a time yeah absolutely and it's also i think the whole technical side of it like 
how to work with different different knots, different lines, different all the technical and tool side of it was really engaging for me too. And it was kind of a new world um, getting to know all that, which I've pretty much forgotten <laughs> most of it now. I mean, I strictly worked on the ground. So it was like, I was kind of just doing the heavy lifting a lot and then slowly learning. But yeah, I miss it. I, I definitely miss a lot of aspects of it. Um, I miss working with a team and not being the leader. I think that's one thing on, on tour. It's like, my music and what I'm doing is like, I'm the leader of that. And it, every decision has to filter through my brain and it's exhausting. Sometimes I wish someone else would just <laughs> be like, carry that log over to there. And then those other 300 logs. <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, I think I remember it was some interview with a writer where he was like, if I wasn't a professional writer, I would want to be like a grave digger because all I, I would just have to dig graves and meanwhile I could just think about like the stuff that I would want to write. Like it just frees yeah. up the brain space while you're just like digging ditches. <laughs> Absolutely. I used to, I grew up working in my grandpa's funeral home and I've, I've dug a bunch of graves and it is, there's something very like, I don't know. There's, there's something about it that makes you think. And it was never like a weird feeling for me, but it was always like, this is, this is the whole, like we all end up here and I was very young doing it. So, but yeah, it was it was interesting work for sure. Now that's <laughs> that seems like it would trickle down to like the the kind of material that you write, which is very kind of like dark, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, for sure. There's 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 probably a lot of influence there that I haven't recognized. It's <laughs> growing up working in the funeral funeral industry. Yeah. What age were you when you like um kind of got out there into the world and just started traveling around? Um, I left home when I was 14, but I, you know, it's like I went out and was like hitchhiking around and at that age, but would come back to my folks, but was just kind of in the beginning phases of being a more uh, transient person. I think by the time I was like, I don't know, 17, 18, I was definitely moving around a lot, but yeah, four, 14, which now I'll meet 14-year-olds, and I'm like, dear God, kid, <laughs> like, stay in school, stay stay home. <laughs> like, I don't know. I also, I came from a lot of siblings, so it was, I think, it wasn't a big deal for one to fly the nest early. Mm. <laughs> Your parents were just like, we got extra. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, there's plenty of little red-headed hellions running around here. We can spare one. <laughs> What was kind of like your first experience, you know, with with like the Romani and uh, Appalachian music that you ended up kind of uh, being a, a late adopter of? Yeah, absolutely. I think my buddy that I grew up with, who's probably the best fiddler slash violinist I've ever heard, um, he... We kind of both left home real young and like went separate ways. And when when we kind of met back up, I was playing banjo very poorly, um, <laughs> more like punk music on a banjo. And he was playing like klezmer and Romani music. And I was like, whoa, that sound is oh, so close to like the metal and punk that I grew up on. I was like, it was just kind of a quick transition. It was went from like pretty fast, aggressively uh, played music 
into like Romani music because it's almost the same thing. It's like fast, it's intense. The emotions are just like very pressing. And honestly, it's like, it's shreddy. <laughs> it's real shreddy. You go from listening to like, I don't know, like Deicide and Slayer to Trefti Dukes and, <laughs> you know, and it's like, it's not that different. It's It's pretty heavy stuff. So then I played that for a long time, and that's how I learned to play music. And the chords, I was mostly just a rhythm person. The chords are super engaging and difficult and change. and They don't make sense with Western music theory, which I know none of. And it was just like this weird world to learn music in. And I took that and had some different like Klezmer, Vulcan style bands and projects that I'd play with. And then I think as I got older and just things slowed down, I just took more to Appalachian music, which I always loved, like, you know, Roscoe Holcomb, Doc Boggs, all the all the classics. And I kind of took more to that because those guys were doing it by themselves and it was still so powerful. Um, so, yeah. And also just out of practicality, once I stopped playing with those bands and was busking by myself, the Romani music didn't necessarily have the best bang on the street like singing and playing fiddle at the same time doing Appalachian stuff mm. did way better. That was probably honestly the why I transitioned to playing Appalachian music the most because it worked busking really well. How old were you when you kind of like were getting into this stuff and transitioned over? 16, 17, maybe even a little bit younger than that. Um, and then when I started playing Appalachian stuff, it was probably about a decade ago-ish. Yeah, I'm 33 now. So yeah, about a decade ago. Yeah, it's it's so interesting to hear like, I guess so much of the this kind of like bluegrass or like Appalachian style music is played by people who kind of grew up with it and like um, were playing it since they were pretty young, it seems like. Yeah, the, the oral tradition of old time is very strong in this area too. And it's like, I never really had that, you know, it's, uh, and, and you hear it. It's like, I think in my plane, you can hear the rowdier punk stuff coming out and that's my roots. Whereas around here you hear it and it's very, I mean, it's very beautiful and it's, uh, but it's, it's very well preserved. The roots of that music are here and, you know, eventually over to the UK, Ireland stuff, but it's been here for a while and it has a specific sound. And I think that's why when I try and play old time with people, it just doesn't work. <laughs> it just does not. They, they're never happy. I don't know what's going on. So I feel like people who probably aren't like as aware of like the, the different styles will probably think, Oh yeah, you, you play this old timey stuff. Yeah. It, it gets confusing. Cause it's like, you know, I just charted on the bluegrass charts I most certainly don't play bluegrass. People ask me, and I'm like, uh, old time? I most certainly don't play old time. You know, they say, like, Romani music, and it's like, I don't even really, it's just this weird, amorphous kind of, <laughs> any any kind of music. Yeah, it's, there's not really a definitive style that I play. You know, when, when people ask, I just say bluegrass, because I think that makes sense to them, you know. Yeah, it gets the instruments right in people's heads, at least. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, Deep Deep Chatham was the hardest band to categorize, and a guy that recorded us a while back 
we were trying to come up with like what kind of music do we play and he came up with americinda and i was like that's that's the most accurate accurate description i've heard so far no that that's a great genre name yeah i guess just to like take one song as, as an example like i don't know how many other covers you've done but like the doc boggs song uh old rub alcohol blues does the way you play it sound like um the way that that doc boggs would have played it you think i think i'll never be able to play as tastefully as doc boggs i mean he was he was the master of simplicity Had a very simple two-finger style. He only did what was necessary, but it was so full sounding. And the way I play it is just like, it sounds like you're getting attacked by a turkey. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because Old Rub Alcohol Blues was the first claw hammer banjo song I ever learned. And I still play it to this day. And a lot of people would kind of say, why are you still doing that? But it's, I feel like it's still a great tune and I love playing it. But the way he played it was, truly beautiful and tasteful the way i play it is definitely for the flog and molly crowd <laughs> and it's trouble up and down the and it's trials all the way around i never knew what trouble really was till my darling threw me down I get clothes dropping from my body and my heartstrings broken. I recently in one of my lessons was trying to teach that song and I, I mean I have no idea what I'm doing <laughs> when I'm playing and breaking it down that slow was very difficult and I, the whole time I was like this is what I'm doing but it just doesn't seem like it actually works <laughs> so I don't know it's full speed or nothing on that one I soaked up that old robe alcohol And these are troubles all off of my mind Has it been interesting, like, trying to teach people? Like, uh, I think a lot of people have been taking up, like, kind of the, the Zoom um, lessons with their fans and stuff. Yeah, it's been great um i mean last month or was it the month before that i don't know it's all kind of starting to blur together but i did almost like 60 lessons which was great to pay for putting the album out but as far as the lessons themselves like it's really good like like i just said i, I just blur through things so fast and i don't think about what i'm doing anymore so to slow it down really be like, oh, why do I do it like this? I should be doing it like this. It's all the little touches that people probably normally do. And I think it's been really good. And also biking has kind of took, taken over my life. So <laughs> anything that'll get me behind an instrument right now is good. And also uh, another thing is like teaching people that don't play the instrument. And at this time during the pandemic, when people are like stuck at home, you can just see people taking to it and loving it and feeling good about it. And it, it feels really good, you know, not, not to say like I'm putting something good into the world, but it's like, you know, definitely more music in the world 
more people playing instruments would would help so yeah it's 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 helped me a lot be maintain and be a better musician and it also just feels good because i've been doing it for a couple months now and i'm seeing people that started at nothing and they're now shredders <laughs> and it's awesome and they're gonna be putting me out of work before i know it so <laughs> yeah it's interesting like to just think about like oh like you say like you know you you have like this kind of style that no one knows how to make heads or tails of but like now they're going to be like you know uh disciples of heckler out into the world <laughs> I'm tra training an army of people that are gonna piss off a lot of traditionalists <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're gonna go try and like go into a jam and everyone's just gonna be like what is that like oh it's it's heckler style <laughs> like oh, or like like some kind of like weird like niche mountain style that maybe no one has heard of until now yeah there's there, i'm definitely in old time music they're called jam busters <laughs> <laughs> so i'm definitely training some jam busters but at the same time i try and get a little more traditional with the lessons and people uh you know i can only teach so much before i'm like you should go to someone that's more well-versed in this music and pursue it. So it's like, I think people are learning a little bit more of the like fast stuff from me and then going to other folks um, and taking lessons, which I think is great. Cause I mean, you put me next to a lot of musicians that are doing what I'm doing. Uh, and I'm just not any, <laughs> they're a lot better than me. <laughs> so I think it's good for the people I've been teaching to, see what other people are doing and how to play things the way they do it too yeah but i mean like so many kids get into music because of punk and it's because it's it's easy like not yeah. to not to say anything about your style or anything but like um it's just more accessible in that way yeah like hey i know three chords and <laughs> how to play really hard and fast yeah and it's like you know with the way times are progressing it's like young people are just getting angry and angrier so it's like you gotta learn three chords you just got somewhere to put that anger then <laughs> it's like punk music is is a useful tool in society these days yeah still i mean a lot of the songs i write are two chords three chords i'll go to put guitar down on a track and be like this song's really just one chord the whole time <laughs> i thought it was more than that yeah just like kind of punk that disguises itself as like old-timey music i guess exactly <laughs> i'm going across the sea i'm gone forever and more fare thee well my pretty little miss i'm bound forever and sure again that was an extra bonus episode with matt heckler definitely go back and listen to the previous episode if you haven't already there, we talk a lot more about his latest album, Bloodwater Coal, which debuted at number three on the Bluegrass Billboard chart. Go to ksu.org to find links to all of that, plus a full list of the songs played in this episode. No Cover is a production of KOSU and the service of Oklahoma State University. Our editor is Ryan McCroy, and our cover art was created by Terry Ferris. You can find No Cover wherever you listen to podcasts, and definitely subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. Thanks for listening. I'm Matthew Variapa. Come my own